Section 8 of the Journals of Robert Falcon Scott Volume 1 by Robert Falcon Scott This is a LibriVox recording. Section 8 Chapter 4 Settling In Part 1 Sunday, January the 8th, a day of disaster. I stupidly gave permission for the third motor to be got out this morning. This was done first thing, and the motor placed on firm ice. Later, Campbell told me one of the men had dropped a leg through crossing a sludgy patch some two hundred yards from the ship. I didn't consider it very serious, as I imagined the man had only gone through the surface crust. About seven a.m. I started for the shore with a single man load, leaving Campbell looking about for the best crossing for the motor. I sent Mears and the dogs over with a can of petrol on arrival. After some twenty minutes he returned to tell me the motor had gone through. Soon after, Campbell and Day arrived to confirm the dismal tidings. It appears that getting frightened of the state of affairs, Campbell got out a line and attached it to the motor. Then manning the line well, he attempted to rush the machine across the weak place. A man on the rope, Wilkinson, suddenly went through to the shoulders but was immediately hauled out. During the operation the ice under the motor was seen to give, and suddenly it and the motor disappeared. The men kept hold of the rope, but it cut through the ice towards them, with an ever-increasing strain, obliging one after another to let go. Half a minute later nothing remained but a big hole. Perhaps it was lucky there was no accident to the men, but it's a sad incident for us in any case. It's a big blow to know that one of the two best motors, on which so much time and trouble have been spent, now lies at the bottom of the sea. The actual spot where the motor disappeared was crossed by its fellow motor with a very heavy load, as well as by myself with heavy ponies only yesterday. Mears took Campbell back and returned with the report that the ice in the vicinity of the accident was hourly getting more dangerous. It was clear that we were practically cut off, certainly as regards heavy transport. Bowers went back again with Mears and managed to ferry over some wind-clothes and odds and ends. Since that no communication has been held. The shore party have been working, but the people on board have had a half-holiday. At six I went to the ice edge, farther to the north. I found a place where the ship could come and be near the heavy ice, over which sledging is still possible. I went near the ship and semaphored directions for her to get to this place as soon as she could, using steam if necessary. She is at present wedged in with the pack, and I think Pennell hopes to warp her along when the pack loosens. Mears and I marked the new trail with kerosene tins before returning. So here we are, waiting again till fortune is kinder. Meanwhile the hut proceeds. Altogether there are four layers of boarding to go on, two of which are nearing completion. It will be some time before the rest and the insulation is on. It's a big job getting settled in like this, and a tantalising one, when one is hoping to do some depot work before the season closes. We had a keen north wind to-night and a haze, but the wind is dropping and the sun shining brightly again. Today seemed to be the hottest we have yet had. After walking across I was perspiring freely, and later, as I sat in the sun, after lunch, one could almost imagine a warm summer day in England. This is my first night ashore. 
I'm writing in one of my new domed tents, which makes a very comfortable apartment. Monday, January the ninth. I didn't poke my nose out of my tent till 6.45, and the first object I saw was the ship, which had not previously been in sight from our camp. She was now working her way along the ice edge with some difficulty. I heard afterwards that she had started at 6.15, and she reached the point I marked yesterday at 8.15. After breakfast I went on board, and was delighted to find a good solid road right up to the ship. A flag was hoisted immediately for the ponies to come out, and we commenced a good day's work. All day the sledges have been coming to and fro, but most of the pulling work has been done by the ponies. The track is so good that these little animals haul anything from twelve to eighteen hundred weight. Both dogs and men parties have been a useful addition to the haulage. No party and no single man comes over without a load averaging three hundred pounds per man. The dogs, working five to a team, haul five to six hundred weight, and of course they travel much faster than either ponies or men. In this way we transported a large quantity of miscellaneous stores, first about three tons of coal for present use, then two and a half tons of carbide, all the many stores, chimney and ventilators for the hut, all the biologist's gear, a big pile, the remainder of the physicist's gear, and medical stores, and many old cases. In fact, a general clear-up of everything except the two heavy items of forage and fuel. Later in the day we made a start on the first of these, and got seven tons ashore before ceasing work. We close with a good day to our credit, marred by an unfortunate incident. One of the dogs, a good puller, was seen to cough after a journey. He was evidently trying to bring something up. Two minutes later he was dead. Nobody seems to know the reason, but a post-mortem is being held by Atkinson, and I suppose the cause of death will be found. We can't afford to lose animals of any sort. All the ponies except three have now brought loads from the ship. Oates thinks these three are too nervous to work over this slippery surface. However, he tried one of the hardest cases to-night, a very fine pony, and got him in successfully with a big load. Tomorrow we ought to be running some twelve or thirteen of these animals. Griffith Taylor's bolted on three occasions, the first two times more or less due to his own fault, but the third owing to the stupidity of one of the sailors. Nevertheless, a third occasion couldn't be overlooked by his messmates, who made much merriment of the event. It was still funnier when he brought his final load, an exceptionally heavy one, with a set face and ardent pace, vouchsafing not a word to anyone he passed. We have achieved fair organisation today. Evans is in charge of the road, and periodically goes along searching for bad places and bridging cracks with boards and snow. Bowers checks every case as he comes on shore, and dashes off to the ship to arrange the precedence of different classes of goods. He proves a perfect treasure. There is not a single case he does not know, or a single article of any sort which he cannot put his hand on at once. Rennick and Bruce are working gallantly at the discharge of stores on board. Williamson and Lease load the sledges, and are getting very clever and expeditious. Evans, seaman, is generally superintending the sledging and camp outfit. Ford, Kean, and Abbott are regularly assisting the carpenter, whilst Day, Lashley, Lilly, and others give intermittent help. Wilson, Cherry Garrard, Wright, Griffith Taylor, Debenham, Crean, 
and Browning have been driving ponies, a task at which I have assisted myself once or twice. There was a report that the ice was getting rotten, but I went over it myself and found it sound throughout. The accident with the motor-sledge has made people nervous. The weather has been very warm and fine on the whole, with occasional gleams of sunshine, but to-night there is rather a chill wind from the south. The hut is progressing famously. In two more working days we ought to have everything necessary on shore. Tuesday, January the 10th. We have been six days in Mercurdo Sound, and to-night I can say we are landed. Were it impossible to land another pound, we could go on without hitch. Nothing like it has been done before, nothing so expeditious and complete. This morning the main loads were fodder. Sledge after sledge brought the bales, and early in the afternoon the last, except for about a ton stowed with eastern party stores, was brought on shore. Some addition to our patent fuel was made in the morning, and later in the afternoon it came in a steady stream. We have more than twelve tons, and could make this do if necessity arose. In addition to this, oddments have been arriving all day, instruments, clothing, and personal effects. Our camp is becoming so perfect in its appointments that I am almost suspicious of some drawback hidden by the summer weather. The hut is progressing apace, and all agree that it should be the most perfectly comfortable habitation. It amply repays the time and attention given to the planning. The sides have double boarding inside and outside the frames, with a layer of our excellent quilted seaweed insulation between each pair of boardings. The roof has a single matchboarding inside, but on the outside is a matchboarding, then a layer of two-ply rubberoid, then a layer of quilted seaweed, then a second matchboarding, and finally a cover of three-ply rubberoid. The first floor is laid, but over this there will be a quilting, a felt layer, a second boarding, and finally linoleum. As the plenteous volcanic sand can be piled well up on every side, it is impossible to imagine that draughts can penetrate into the hut from beneath, and it is equally impossible to imagine great loss of heat by contact or radiation in that direction. To add to the wall insulation, the south and east sides of the hut are piled high with compressed forage bales, whilst the north side is being prepared as a winter stable for the ponies. The stable will stand between the wall of the hut and a wall built of forage bales, six bales high and two bales thick. This will be roofed with rafters and tarpaulin, as we cannot find enough boarding. We shall have to take care that too much snow does not collect on the roof, otherwise the place should do excellently well. Some of the ponies are very troublesome, but all except two have been running to-day, and until this evening there were no excitements. After tea, Oates suggested leading one of the two intractable animals behind other sledges. At the same time, he brought out the strong, nervous grey pony. I led one of the supposedly safe ponies, and all went well whilst we made our journey. Three loads were safely brought in. But whilst one of the sledges was being unpacked, the pony tied to it suddenly got scared. Away he dashed, with sledge attached. He made straight for the other ponies— but finding the incubus still fast to him, he went in wider circles, galloped over hills and boulders, narrowly missing Ponting in his camera, and finally dashed downhill to camp again, pretty exhausted. Oddly enough, neither sledge nor pony was much damaged. 
then we departed again in the same order. Halfway over the flow, my rear pony got his foreleg foul of his halter, then got frightened, tugged at his halter, and lifted the unladen sledge to which he was tied. Then the halter broke, and away he went. But by this time the damage was done. My pony snorted wildly, and sprang forward as the sledge banged to the ground. I just managed to hold him till Oates came up. Then we started again, but he was thoroughly frightened. All my blandishments failed when he reared and plunged a second time, and I was obliged to let go. He galloped back, and the party dejectedly returned. At the camp Evans got hold of the pony, but in a moment it was off again, knocking Evans off his legs. Finally he was captured and led forth once more between Oates and Anton. He remained fairly well on the outward journey, but on the homeward grew restive again. Evans, who was now leading him, called for Anton, and both tried to hold him, but to no purpose he dashed off, upset his load, and came back to the camp with a sledge. All these troubles arose after he had made three journeys without a hitch, and we had come to regard him as a nice, placid, gritty pony. Now I am afraid it will take a deal of trouble to get him safe again, and we have three very troublesome beasts instead of two. I have written this in some detail to show the unexpected difficulties that arise with these animals, and the impossibility of knowing exactly where one stands. The majority of our animals seem pretty quiet now, but any one of them may break out in this way if things go awry. There is no doubt that the bumping of the sledges close to the heels of the animals is the root of the evil. The weather has the appearance of breaking. We had a strongish northerly breeze at midday with snow and hailstorms, and now the wind has turned to the south, and the sky is overcast with threatenings of a blizzard. The flow is cracking, and pieces may go out. If so, the ship will have to get up steam again. The hail at noon made the surface very bad for some hours. The men and dogs felt it most. The dogs are going well, but Mears says he thinks that several are suffering from snow-blindness. I never knew a dog get it before, but Day says that Shackleton's dogs suffered from it. The post-mortem on last night's death revealed nothing to account for it. Atkinson didn't examine the brain and wonders if the cause lay there. There is a certain satisfaction in believing that there is nothing infectious. Wednesday, January the 11th. A week here today. It seems quite a month, so much has been crammed into a short space of time. The threatened blizzard materialised at about four o'clock this morning. The wind increased to force six or seven at the ship, and continued to blow with drift throughout the forenoon. Campbell, with his sledging party, arrived at the camp at 8 a.m., bringing a small load. There seemed little object, but I suppose they liked the experience of a march in the blizzard. They started to go back, but the ship being blotted out, turned and gave us their company at breakfast. The day was altogether too bad for outside work, so we turned our attention to the hut interior, with the result that to-night all the matchboarding is completed. The floor linoleum is the only thing that remains to be put down. Outside the roof and ends have to be finished. Then there are several days of odd jobs for the carpenter, and all will be finished. It is a first-rate building in an extraordinarily sheltered spot. Whilst the wind was raging at the ship this morning we enjoyed comparative peace. Campbell says there was an extraordinary change as he approached the beach. 
I sent two or three people to dig into the hard snow drift behind the camp. They got into solid ice immediately, became interested in the job, and have begun the making of a cave, which is to be our larder. Already they have tunnels six or eight feet in, and have begun side channels. In a few days they will have made quite a spacious apartment, an ideal place to keep our meat store. We have been speculating as to the origin of this solid drift, and attach great antiquity to it. But the diggers came to a patch of earth with skewer feathers, which rather knocks our theories on the head. The wind began to drop at midday, and after lunch I went to the ship. I was very glad to learn that she can hold steam at two hours' notice on an expenditure of thirteen hundredweight. The ice anchors had held well during the blow. As far as I can see, the open water extends to an east and west line, which is a little short of the glacier tongue. Tonight the wind has dropped altogether, and we return to the glorious conditions of a week ago. I trust they may last for a few days at least. Thursday, January the 12th. Bright sun again all day, but in the afternoon a chill wind from the south-southwest. Again we are reminded of the shelter afforded by our position. Tonight the anemometers on Observatory Hill show a twenty-mile wind. Down in the valley we only have mild puffs. Sledging began as usual this morning. Seven ponies and the dog-teams were hard at it all the forenoon. I ran six journeys with five dogs, driving them in the Siberian fashion for the first time. It was not difficult, but I kept forgetting the Russian words at critical points. Ki, right. Chui, left. Ita, right ahead. Here is a blank in memory and in diary. Get along. Poor. Stop. Even my short experience makes me think that we may have to reorganise this driving to suit our particular requirements. I am inclined for smaller teams and the driver behind the sledge. However, it's early days to decide such matters, and we shall learn much on the depot journey. Early in the afternoon a message came from the ship to say that all stores had been landed. Nothing remains to be brought but mutton, books and pictures and the pianola. So at last we really are a self-contained party, ready for all emergencies. We are landed, eight days after our arrival. A very good record. The hut could be inhabited at this moment, but probably we shall not begin to live in it for a week. Meanwhile the carpenter will go on steadily fitting up the dark room and various other compartments, as well as Simpson's corner. The grotto party are making headway into the ice for our larder, but it is slow and very arduous work. However, once made, it will be admirable in every way. Tomorrow we begin sending ballast off to the ship. Some thirty tons will be sledged off by the ponies. The hut and grotto parties will continue, and the arrangements for the depot journey will be commenced. I discussed these with Bowers this afternoon. He is a perfect treasure, enters into one's ideas at once, and evidently thoroughly understands the principles of the game. I have arranged to go to Hut Point with Mears and some dogs to-morrow to test the ice and see how the land lies. As things are at present, we ought to have little difficulty in getting the depot party away any time before the end of the month, but the ponies will have to cross the Cape without loads. There is a way down to the south side, straight across, and another way round, keeping the land on the north side and getting on ice at the Cape itself. Probably the ship will take the greater part of the loads. Saturday, January the 14th. 
the completion of our station is approaching with steady progress. The wind was strong from the south-south-east yesterday morning, sweeping over the camp. The temperature fell to fifteen degrees. The sky became overcast. To the south the land outlines were hazy with drift, so my dog tour was abandoned. In the afternoon, with some moderation of conditions, the ballast party went to work and wrought so well that more than ten tons were got off before night. The organisation of this work is extremely good. The loose rocks are pulled up, some thirty or forty feet up the hillside, placed on our heavy rough sledges, and rushed down to the flow on a snow-track. Here they are laden on pony sledges and transported to the ship. I slept on board the ship and found it colder than the camp. The cabins were below freezing all night, and the only warmth existed in the cheery spirit of the company. The cold snap froze the water in the boiler, and Williams had to light one of the fires this morning. I shaved and bathed last night, the first time for ten days, and wrote letters from breakfast till tea-time to-day. Meanwhile the ballast teams have been going on merrily, and to-night Pennell must have some twenty-six tons on board. It was good to return to the camp and see the progress which has been made, even during such a short absence. The grotto has been much enlarged, and is, in fact, now big enough to hold all our mutton and a considerable quantity of seal and penguin. Close by, Simpson and Wright have made surprising progress in excavating for the differential magnetic hut. They have already gone in seven feet, and, turning a corner, commenced the chamber, which is to be thirteen feet by five feet. The hard ice of this slope is a godsend, and both grottoes will be ideal for their purposes. The cooking range and stove have been placed in the hut, and now chimneys are being constructed. The porch is almost finished, as well as the interior. The various carpenters are busy with odd jobs, and it will take them some time to fix up the many small fittings that different people require. I have been making arrangements for the depot journey, telling off people for ponies and dogs, etc. Tomorrow is to be our first rest day, but next week everything will be tending towards sledging preparations. I have also been discussing and writing about the provisions of animals to be brought down in the Terra Nova next year. The wind is very persistent from the south-south-east, rising and falling. Tonight it has sprung up again, and is rattling the canvas of the tent. Some of the ponies are not turning out so well as I expected. They are slow walkers, and must inevitably impede the faster ones. Two of the best have been told off for Campbell by Oates, and I must alter the arrangement. Then I am not quite sure they are going to stand the cold well, and on this first journey they may have to face pretty severe conditions. Then, of course, there is the danger of losing them on thin ice, or by injuries sustained in rough places. Although we have fifteen now, two having gone for the eastern party, it is not at all certain that we shall have such a number when the main journey is undertaken next season. One can only be careful and hope for the best. Sunday, January the 15th. We had decided to observe this day as a day of rest, and so it has been. At one time or another the majority have employed their spare hours in writing letters. We rose late, having breakfast at nine. The morning promised well, and the day fulfilled the promise. We had bright sunshine and practically no wind. At ten a.m. the men and officers streamed over from the ship, and we all assembled on the beach, and I read divine service. Our first service at the camp, and impressive in the open air. 
After service I told Campbell that I should have to cancel his two ponies and give him two others. He took it like the gentleman he is, thoroughly appreciating the reason. He had asked me previously to be allowed to go to Cape Royds, over the glacier, and I had given permission. After our talk we went together to explore the route, which we expected to find much crevassed. I only intended to go a short way, but on reaching the snow above the uncovered hills of our cape, I found the surface so promising, and so free from cracks, that I went quite a long way. Eventually I turned, leaving Campbell, Gran, and Nelson roped together, and on ski to make their way onward, but not before I felt certain that the route to Cape Royds would be quite easy. As we topped the last rise, we saw Taylor and Wright somewhere ahead on the slope. They had come up by a different route. Evidently they are bound for the same goal. I returned to camp, and after lunch Mears and I took a sledge and nine dogs over the cape to the sea ice on the south side, and started for Hut Point. We took a little provision and a cooker, and our sleeping bags. Mears had found a way over the cape, which was on snow all the way except about a hundred yards. The dogs pulled well, and we went towards the glacier tongue at a brisk pace, found much of the ice uncovered. Towards the glacier tongue there were some heaps of snow, much wind-blown. As we rose the glacier we saw the Nimrod depot some way to the right and made for it. We found a good deal of compressed fodder and boxes of maize, but no grain crushed as expected. The open water was practically up to the glacier tongue. We descended by an easy slope a quarter of a mile from the end of the glacier tongue, but found ourselves cut off by an open crack some fifteen feet across, and had to get on the glacier again and go some half a mile further in. We came to a second crack, but avoided it by skirting to the west. From this point we had an easy run without difficulty to Hut Point. There was a small pool of open water and a longish crack off Hut Point. I got my feet very wet crossing the latter. We passed hundreds of seals at various cracks. On arrival at the hut, to my chagrin, we found it filled with snow. Shackleton reported that the door had been forced by the wind, but that he had made an entrance by the window and found shelter inside. Other members of his party used it for shelter, but they actually went away and left the window, which they had forced, open. As a result, nearly the whole of the interior of the hut is filled with hard icy snow, and it is now impossible to find shelter inside. Mears and I were able to clamber over the snow to some extent, and to examine the neat pile of cases in the middle, but they will take much digging out. We got some asbestos sheeting from the magnetic hut, and made the best shelter we could to boil our cocoa. There was something too depressing in finding the old hut in such a desolate condition. I had had so much interest in seeing all the old landmarks and the huts apparently intact. To camp outside and feel that all the old comfort and cheer had departed was dreadfully heart-rending. I went to bed thoroughly depressed. It seems a fundamental expression of civilised human sentiment that men who come to such places as this should leave what comfort they can to welcome those who follow. End of chapter 4, part 1